0: Malta was once a hidden gem in the Mediterranean. But now it's being discovered more and more by North Americans. And that means it's diverse and offers something for everyone. You can scuba dive to explore sunken ships, eat traditional Maltese foods like pastizzi, a flaky pastry filled with ricotta cheese, visit one of three UNESCO World Heritage sites, and so much more. Plus, Malta gets more than 300 days of sunshine, so it's a year-round destination. Get inspired and plan your trip today at visitmalta.com. Are you looking for an off-the-beaten-path island destination in the Mediterranean? I highly recommend Malta, an archipelago with 8,000 years of history. It's home to three UNESCO World Heritage sites, including Valletta, Malta's capital. Malta also has the oldest freestanding stone architecture in the world, showcasing one of the British Empire's most formidable defense systems. If you travel for history, Malta has an impressive mix of domestic, religious, and military structures from the ancient, medieval, and early modern periods. It's also rich in culture. You'll find events and festivals all year round, plus beautiful beaches, a thriving nightlife, and a trendy gastronomical scene with seven Michelin-starred restaurants plan your trip today at visitmalta.com. Hi, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Aislinn Green. I don't know about you, but I am finally beginning to dip my toes back into the travel waters. For example, I recently took my first flight in nearly two years, which took me to Alaska. Getting back out in the world, it really just makes me want to travel more. So lucky for us, the creative folks I've worked with over the past seven years, comedians, philosophers, novelists, they feel the same way. So each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from one of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. Ready? Let's go. Now let's fly to Tuscany via afar-contributing writer Lisa Abend. Lisa is a journalist based in Copenhagen and the author of The Sorcerer's Apprentices, A Season in the Kitchen at Ferran Adria's El Bumi. Lisa has, as you can imagine, devoted herself to the craft of writing, so it'll come as no surprise that she's both an avid reader and a lover of books in general. On her first visit to Tuscany as a college student, she discovered a shop in Lucca that specializes in customized ex libris also known as book blades. They're kind of like your own personal literary coat of arms, one that you can paste in all your books. And she desperately wanted one, but realized at the time that she needed more life experience before she could commit to such a personal and slightly expensive thing. 29 years later, with an established career and a book under her belt, she finally felt ready. And so she returned to Luca in search of that print shop and her very own ex libris
1: I was in college the first time I went to Italy, and my memories of that trip are mostly the standard-issue stuff of any backpacking student. The Leaning Tower of Pisa, the Colosseum, the sniffy waiters offended by dinner orders that consisted of a single plate of tortellini panna and a glass of water. Tap is fine. Grazie mille. The hostels and gelato and trains and pizza and random Italian boys you make out with by the Ponte Vecchio. But on a day trip to the walled city of Lucca, I found a place that felt like it was created just for me. Wandering down a side street, my attention was caught by the display window of what appeared to be a stationery store. But this was a real print shop. I could glimpse the oily black steel of the hulking letterpress inside, and I could tell that the invitations and flyers on display in that window were made with exquisite craftsmanship. But what really made me swoon were the ex libris. An ex libris is the square of paper that you paste in the front of a book to identify its owner, a book plate, in other words. Most only have the owner's name on them, but these were extraordinary. Each was custom designed, drawn, and hand printed, a small, exquisite work of art intended not merely to identify the owner of the book into which it was pasted, but to express something significant about her, like the intellectual version of a heraldic shield. I entered the shop. An ink-stained man working the press looked up and handed me a form. Printed in an elegant typeface on thick, creamy paper were a series of questions. Favorite poet? Favorite time of day? Favorite number? Based on my answers, I came to understand. The printer would then design a book plate just for me. Never in my life have I wanted something so much. In part, I wanted an ex libris because I simply love books. Reading has always been central to my identity. But there was something about the process of having one tailor-made for my answers to a series of mildly cryptic questions that seemed almost magical to me, as if a bookplate from the Antica Typografia Biagini might, in some profound, intimate way I couldn't quite explain, capture my true essence it might make me feel seen and yet i balked it wasn't just the money although i certainly didn't have it and it wasn't that the questions were difficult although some did people really have a favorite stone admittedly gave me pause it was more that i could recognize even in my callowness that i was too callow a book plate is a serious thing i realized It's a permanent sign of a person with long-cultivated tastes—the kind of thing a cultured aristocrat might have, or an author with a shelf of books behind her. I wanted to be cultured, and I wanted to be a writer, but I knew I wasn't really either of those things yet. I kept the form, but I didn't fill it out. I never forgot about it, though, and a couple of decades later, I began to wonder if I might finally be ready. By then, I had moved to Europe and established myself as a journalist. I had even become an author, and if the shelf of my works was comprised entirely of multiple copies of the one book I had published, at least it was a shelf. Finally, it felt like maybe I had earned my ex libris. I booked a trip to Tuscany. There was only one problem. By the time I was ready, books themselves were no longer what they used to be. They were no longer the thing most of us turned to first for research or that we relax with at the end of the day. I googled the Antica Tipografia Biagini to see if it even still existed. It did, but could find no indication of whether it still designed those small squares of paper that attested to their owner's bibliophilia. Did anyone need them anymore? For that matter, did anyone need books? Arriving in Florence, I quickly learned how pressing the question was. Since the Renaissance, the city has been a center for the book arts, but the places that are still devoted to it today are definitely under threat. At the Giulio Giannini Bookbindery, which had once made notebooks for members of Queen Victoria's court, they now offer paper marbling classes to tourists in order to stay afloat. And at Atelier G.K., the real passion of artisans Michiko and Lupo is to create stunning, one-of-a-kind art books. But they survive financially with commissions from American companies for handmade date books and passport covers. And so, by the time I got to Lucca, I wasn't sure what to expect. But there, on the same street, was Antica Tipografia Biagini. The place was just as I remembered it, though its ownership had changed. Matteo Valese was visiting family in Lucca eight years earlier when he stumbled across the print shop and immediately fell in love. Its founder, Gino Biagini, was a maestro topographer, and his talent had earned him an international clientele. He had designed Ex libras for Jodie Foster and Robert De Niro. But Gino was by then exhausted from the work and the 60 cigarettes he smoked a day. Though he had no experience as a printer, Matteo convinced the maestro to pass the shop along to him. Now, he put on some Bob Dylan, brushed Clara's face at a table overladen with books and papers, and motioned for me to sit. He peered at me closely. You'll need to answer carefully, he said. This is not to be entered into lightly. I'll need to know your family history, your passions, who you are. I said it sounded a bit like therapy, but Matteo didn't laugh at my joke. "'An ex libris is not something you choose on a whim,' he reprimanded. "'It is with you forever.' "'A sign of identity,' I agreed, like a tattoo. "'Echo!' he cried, and for a moment I thought he was going to hug me. "'Instead, he slid a blank, identical copy of the form I had picked up all those years ago across the table. "'This time, I reached for a pen.' The pandemic and other issues at the Antica Tipografia Biagini meant that my ex libris did not arrive until more than a year later. And to be honest, when I opened the box, I felt a momentary twinge of disappointment. The design was every bit as exquisite as I had hoped. It riffed off a famous image from the Spanish Civil War of a young militia woman proudly bearing an anarchist flag by substituting a beautiful flamenco dancer, her hair pulled into a tight bun, hoops dangling from her ears, for the soldier. But it was just a single image, and somewhere along the line, I had come to hope that my ex libris would somehow capture the entirety of my being, my core, and all its contradictions. Yet, as I considered the image further, I came to see how much Mateo had captured. I had studied the Spanish Civil War in graduate school, and identified it on the forum as one of the historic periods that interested me the most— I had mentioned that Lorca, who filled his verses with gypsy women and flamenco rhythms, was my favorite poet. My interest in politics was there, my love of the arts, my respect for passion and all of its variations. All these aspects of myself that I had acquired in the years since my first trip to Italy had somehow made it into that tiny square of paper. A person is too complex to fully capture on a piece of paper, but my ex libris, I realized, said a lot about what mattered to this person. I pulled a volume from my bookshelf and pasted in the first one. That was
0: Lisa Abend. In recent months, Lisa has resumed traveling again, first visiting Mallorca in June 2020. More recently, she traveled to Greenland to report a story on the connection between climate change and language for Afar you can watch for it in our March-April 2021 Earth issue. If you want more from Lisa, read her book, of course, and subscribe to her Substack newsletter, board, which reveals the stories and personalities behind Copenhagen's food scene. We'll link to it in the show notes. Finally, it's time for Tiny Travel Tales, when we hand over the mic to our listeners. That's you! Now let's hear from Jacek Gonzars from Lake Worth Beach, Florida.
2: If I told you I had strolled along a black pebbled beach dotted with giant diamonds glistening in the moonlight, you'd think I was pilfering from a Jules Verne novel. I'm cruising east, on Iceland's Route 1 towards Jökulsárlón, the lagoon where broken pieces of glacier get swept into the ocean and onto shore. On my left, a continuous verdant rock wall over 100 stories high. Pillowy clouds hover on top and thin serpentine waterfalls follow ancient crevices along its side. An occasional farmhouse made of wood and painted a traditional black sits at the base dwarfed by the imposing landscape. The radio picks up only one station. A harmonica plays an old American blues tune, and to my surprise, is accompanied by Icelandic vocals. Perhaps it's a befitting tribute to the vulnerable glaciers, melting faster than ever. On my right, flat gravel-covered terrain stretches out to the ocean. Neither billboards nor electrical poles litter the sinuous two-lane road paved in smooth ink-colored asphalt. Constellations are non-existent in the summer sky but a full moon lights my way. After the sun sets late into the evening, the day-trippers and tour buses disappear as do the sheep who congregate near the roadside curiously in groups of three. Twilight hues will linger for another two hours allowing me to photograph the beached bergy bits, albeit while enduring in the bitter wind. In front of me, the place I have longed to visit for over 20 years, a land of myths and legends, volcanoes and glaciers, turf-roofed houses and geothermal hot springs, hardy friendly horses and weird birds called puffins. It is also home to Björk, whose lusciously hypnotic voice perfectly echoes the sparse, mesmerizing landscape. I turn off the radio to listen to my thoughts. I am alone, but do not feel lonely, for this is a place for dreamers. And like a kid, I am overcome by a satisfying feeling of mystery and awe.
0: That was listener and photographer Yatset Gonzalez. His last big trip was to Morocco, though he's hoping to get to South America soon to shoot street photography, portraits, and more, he says. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash traveltales and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at afarmedia. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff, Jen Grossman, and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient, travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again, and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours?